Nobody calls me yellow. There's a whole lot. It's a science experiment. We're going back to the movies. 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 Movies. Yeah. What's up, everybody? Welcome to another episode of Back to the Movies. I'm your host, Ben, and with me, as always, is my co-host, Nat. Ben, how you doing, my man? How you feeling about this one? No, you're right. That was much better. <laughs> Listen, we, we've been workshopping the intro a little bit. That was way more natural than that. That was great. Everyone's going to love that. <laughs> my main man, Benny Hain. How you doing, brother? Well, I'm really excited to be here recording an episode on a great film. We've had a little bit of technical difficulties. This may or may not be the second time that we are recording this episode, but that just means it's going to be twice as good. It's true. We recorded this once before, and there was a failure on my part on the recording. But yeah, thank you guys for sticking through all the technical up and down. I know that we've had some weird recordings for some of our previous episodes, but this is a big one. And let me tell you, we are both mic'd up with the best possible equipment that we could find and i think this is going to be our first full production that sounds beautiful and also probably our best conversation that we've had so far in back to the movies onward and upward so get ready for a little bit of back to the movies back to the future part three Oh, shit yeah that's right it's the namesake episode we're gonna have a really good time with this one it's back to the future we got marty we got doc we got Biff. We got them all. But let me uh, just jump in my time machine here and back up a little bit because we haven't introduced the podcast yet. Oh, my God. That's right. Back to the Movies is a podcast where Ben and I travel back, not in a DeLorean, just in our brains. In our imaginations and our Blu-ray players. Not unlike Doc and Marty, we travel back to a specific year of cinema and we revisit a very, very large handful of movies from that year. The year that we are visiting in this first inaugural season of Back to the Movies is 1990, which is 30 years from when we recorded this podcast, just like the 30 years that Marty traveled in the first Back to the Future movie. And like Marty, we're traveling back to a year that has personal importance to us because it was the year we were both born. Let's talk about Back to the Future Part 3. Ben, what's your personal history with this movie? So I think like... Most people our age, I saw Back to the Future when I was, you know, young. I'd say early teenager, maybe pre-teenager. I don't have a specific memory of the first time I saw it, but it was a huge movie. It was a sleepover movie. It was uh, 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 hang out with your friends movie. It was get something cool at the rental store that everyone else can agree with movie. And so all of that combined makes it a high watermark of my childhood cinema. But those sequels were not in the same canon as far as I was concerned. In fact, I don't think I saw them more than once or twice prior to rewatching them for this episode. Back to the Future 3 in particular was the one I remembered liking the least and the one I was sort of the least interested in. And I actually think that when we were putting together our schedule, I originally flowed the idea that we skipped this movie. Oh, never. I know, it's insane now that I've watched them again. That was crazy. How about you? I am a diehard 
Back to the Future fan. I probably was introduced to this franchise through Back to the Future Part 3 because I was a huge, huge fan of anything Western when I was a kid. And especially kind of like juvenile Western. Like, obviously, I wasn't watching Pale Rider or like even Good, the Bad, and the Josie Wales. Yeah, I was more into like Lego Western and like that kind of thing. So... McCabe and Mrs. Miller, that was a big one <laughs> yeah, for you. exactly. So I wasn't really watching those kind of movies, but I was digging stuff like Back to the Future, which sort of dresses itself in the Western era and aesthetic, but is also just kind of a goofy movie. So I think that's kind of what brought me in in the first place. I must have kind of seen it on TV or my dad maybe showed it to me or something. And then I think I went back from there and got really into the movies Watched them probably dozens of times. So you started with three, you think? Three definitely left a huge impression on me. Just the the fact that it was a Western. I think I probably saw the cover in the video store and I was like, I want to watch that. And then I kind of got the rest of it from the other movies. I just remember three leaving like a really indelible impression. I mean, those, those posters slash VHS covers are something. That Drew Stetson poster is incredible. Yeah, great poster. And I love that they keep the consistency of the poster with adding more people to them. It's great. When they made Back to the Future 1, there was no Back to the Future 2 and 3. And yet, so many things work out so nicely for them. Yeah. I don't know if it was just luck or or extremely clever planning, but the poster is definitely an example of that. It's impossible to talk about Back to the Future Part 3 without talking about the other two films. Yeah. It is... Very much a franchise film in that it is a commentary on the other two films that came before it and a product of the choices that led to those films and the way those films turned out. It's not something like James Bond, where each entry is sort of a new chapter, completely free of those that came before. It's densely interwoven and creatively married to everything else in the series. So we have to talk about the other films. I wouldn't even put it in the same category as something like the Marvel movies that are coming out now, because I feel like those are all pretty accessible from a random person walking in and just watching one of them. But these two sequels especially are so reliant on you seeing the first one. And I know that the Marvel movies are more rewardable if you've seen all the other ones, but it's not like this where like you basically just need that reference point. And three stands on its own a little bit more than two. Two is such a weird movie because it relies entirely on having seen the first movie and then weirdly on there being a third movie that comes afterwards. Yeah, it's true. Cause if two was just the last one, if it like hadn't made any money and they just didn't make a third one, you would be like, Really? That's the end? Like, it's it's super reliant. What's up with all these weird Western references? Yeah, yeah, yeah. How come Marty cares about being called a chicken all of a sudden? (laughs) Back to the Future, it's a product of two filmmakers, Robert Zemeckis and Bob Gale. Writing partners, producing partners, they come out of film school together and they launch their careers together uh, trying to break into the industry with a series of unsuccessful films. And I think that they're sort of in that class of like immediately post Spielberg, like they've kind of seen what Spielberg has done and are trying to like follow in his footsteps a little bit. Would you agree with that? 
Oh, absolutely. I think this will be a refrain that I repeat later, but Zemeckis is probably the prototypical Spielberg acolyte. Like, there's a lot of filmmakers that follow in his footsteps that that Spielberg nurtures, but Zemeckis is the closest to him in tone and style. Yeah, the way he develops, shoots, and sequences action scenes, uh, the kinds of stories he tells, these sort of high concept family adventure movies. And it's a fitting because Spielberg is the reason Zemeckis has a career. Spielberg produces his first two films. I want to hold your hand in used cars, which are both failures. And ironically, it's when they sort of try to break from Spielberg to get out from underneath his shadow that they also manage to sort of define themselves. Uh, Zemeckis takes a, a job for hire directing romancing the stone, which turns out to be a huge hit. And so everything he's done prior to Back to the Future is either with Spielberg or as a specific attempt to distance himself from Spielberg. And then when it comes time to make Back to the Future, he goes back and works with Spielberg again. So Zemeckis' partner in filmmaking is Bob Gale. Who writes and produces his films. Yeah, he's sort of the under the hood guy. He's not really part of the production, I guess. He's more of a producer slash writer. And right. I think the original idea for back to the future was his cause he had gone home and like was looking through his parents yearbooks and was like, man, wouldn't it be weird if I met my parents when they were in high school and came up with this whole convoluted time machine plot to get that to happen. What's so interesting about the first back to the future is how close it comes to failing, how, how unlikely it was that we would have ever even gotten that movie in the first place, let alone three of them. Nobody likes the idea. Nobody wants to produce it. Only after Zemeckis makes a name for himself on Romancing the Stone can he get anyone to look at the screenplay they wrote. And even then, the production goes through serious tribulation before it gets completed. Uh, they cast different actors in the lead roles, and they shoot for weeks. And they have to go back to the studio and say, nope, we got the wrong actors. We Can we shoot this whole thing again? I mean, that's a huge expense. Crazy thing to have happen. Can you imagine shooting for two weeks and being like, uh, it was wrong, wrong choice. Let's try again. And just being like, we need millions of dollars to fix this. Sorry. And then firing the guy. That's so crazy. I heard a very interesting anecdote about this, which is that, and many people probably already know this because back to the future is one of the most picked over cultural icons of all time. Uh, but one of the consequences of them hiring Eric Stoltz and then firing him and going back and getting Michael J. Fox, who was their first pick, but who they couldn't work out with his schedule prior to making some deal with the devil with the producer of family ties. <laughs> Part of the consequence of them doing that is they had to change the climax of the film, which was originally going to involve a nuclear test facility and Marty getting in the time machine, which at that point was in a refrigerator and using the power of the nuclear explosion to launch himself back to the future. Oh and my God. Spielberg liked this idea so much that he resurrected it 25 years later for Indiana Jones 4. And everyone loved it. And it was the best thing to ever happen in an Indiana Jones film, and I will hear <laughs> nothing against it. Wow. That, that's what I'm talking about. It's, this movie is almost like an impossible success. And even when you look at it narratively, it doesn't make any sense why back to the future would be such a huge hit. The story is bonkers and uncomfortable and dark and weird. And yet it's the number one film of 1985. It's the Oedipal thing, man. Everyone wants to go back and punch their own father and get with their mom. Yeah. Great. Mm -hmm. 
No, it's it's and you know what it is though. It's an amazing movie. It's so well crafted and it's just a perfect specimen of what makes the movies so much fun and so exciting. And it's just it's amazing that they pulled it off with such a wacky story, but they did, and it's just so good. There is a conversation to be had about why Back to the Future. Uh, but I want to save that for the end because I think that's a good place to build to as we talk about the great parts and the less great parts of this movie. But it is important context as we get into Back to the Future Part 3 to just look at how improbable it was that there would even be a franchise. And then once they realize that they had a hit, they do something crazy. Something so crazy. Back to the Future 2, which I also rewatched in anticipation for watching Back to the Future 3, is one of the craziest movies I've ever seen in retrospect like seeing it again with fresh eyes years later it's crazier than inception it's so insane that that's the direction they decided to take when they could have gone anywhere they wanted with the with the franchise that's what they did and i love it for that the direction they chose is strange and wonderful and even darker than the first movie darker and also more balls to the wall action like they just they they went way crazier with the ideas that they could play around with, I guess because they had a larger budget and they could do more crazy stuff, but not only just larger budget in the sense of, oh, we can go to the future, but in the sense of, oh, we can manipulate the last movie. Like, I just love that that's the creative direction they decide to take with it, where they're going back into a movie that already existed. That's so cool. I always feel like that, that should have been back to the future part three. That that feels more climactic, that part one is the 50s, part two is the future, and then part three is going back through the other two movies. But they decided to move to all in two, but that wasn't even actually the crazy thing I was referring to when I, I, I led us on this tangent. The crazy thing I was referring to was shooting Back to the Future's part two and three back to back. Oh, yeah, which is now kind of a common practice. Yeah, it really. I mean, particularly with these, like, where they adapt IP and they split up you know, one story into multiple movies, the Harry Potters and Twilights and even like Infinity War Endgame. Yeah. And like, I always remember Lord of the Rings was all done in one big shoot and the Matrix sequels and the Pirates of the Caribbean sequels. They did it. So it's kind of become a standard thing for some of these crazy movies. Um, But nobody did it better than Back to the Future. They they got it right. Well, did they? (laughs) I think they did. (laughs) <laughs> Lord of the Rings are well, yeah. incredible. Yeah, that's true. I mean, I, I guess it's Lord of the Rings is a little bit different because it's all three at once. So it's basically just one big movie. But like with something like The Matrix or Pirates, they were like, oh, we we had a huge hit. Let's make both the sequels and just get it over with. And like there was just something off with those sequels that just didn't really work. And they didn't really get a chance to learn from their mistakes in the sequel. Right. For the third right. one. And- What's so interesting about, like, for instance, you look at those two, which are very similar tonally and are part of one long narrative, basically, like the Davy Jones heart narrative. Yeah. The Back to the Future sequels are wildly different from each other. There are lots, there's lots of setup in Back to the Future Part 2 for Part 3, but in terms of, like, themes and character beats and ideas the movies couldn't be more different from each other even tonally 
part two is the darkest and part three is probably the lightest. Yeah, it's true. Um, and it's also just funny that part two insisted on going to like four or I guess it's three very distinct eras. And then in part three, they just stuck in the wild west the whole time. Like they didn't feel like, Oh, we went to the West, but why not then go to the revolutionary war or like doing stuff like that. And I, I do weirdly think it kind of works, but it is just a strange choice that they made to go all over the place in two and then just have a nice quaint Western for part three. So I suppose now is as good a time as any to address that fact. Now, you've already talked about how you kind of loved Westerns when you were a kid and the fact that this was a Western made Back to the Future all the more important to you. Right. But why is it a Western? (laughs) Why is it a Western? I think there's a couple reasons. I think, for one, given the constraints of the DeLorean, they can only really go to the Wild West. We can reimagine Hill Valley as being the Wild West and we're not totally breaking the rules of like having to go to some other random time period because before hill valley was a wild west town it was native american land and i'm sorry but they're just not gonna make that part three so i can see why it was intriguing to them we can go back and it still makes sense within this universe and then it's also just a cinematic tradition to go to the wild west like guns cowboys it's ingrained in movies so It makes sense that two filmmakers who love movies would want to take the opportunity to make a huge, huge Western movie out of their franchise that they're being paid slash forced to create a sequel for. (laughs) Let me put the question another way. Do you think that it works that it's a Western? I think that given the kind of inside jokes and the back to the future humor. I think they reappropriate those jokes that they keep repeating over and over again, pretty well to the wild west. And I guess from a character standpoint, it doesn't make perfect sense. Like why did these two need to go to the wild west other than doc's stupid lines where he says in part two, I love the wild west, but it, gives them an opportunity to have more action adventure moments. So I think in that sense, it works. And I think they adapted pretty well to the wild west. So yeah, I think it works. It's kind of random, especially given the speed of part two, but it's also another fun place to go because ultimately we're time traveling. And this is kind of a huge time travel thing going way back to pre-modern era. So this is, I think, where I'll, I'll 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 give my overall review of the film, and I will say up front that I like this movie way better than I remembered liking it. That there are a lot of great gags, jokes that really land. The filmmaking is top notch. Zemeckis is a great director. He's made some not great movies, but he is a craftsman, true and dyed in the wool. That said, this movie feels totally non essential to me, and the western part of it is a big aspect of that it kind of feels like gail and zemeckis wanted to make a western and so they sort of wedged back to the future into that mold without really ever working to justify it i'll give you an example the fact that they shoot the return to the west scene in monument valley is visually great monument valley looks incredible it's a fun homage to the westerns that zemeckis loves all the john ford films that shot there it makes absolutely zero sense for the movie 
because there's nowhere in California that looks like Monument Valley. And that doesn't make any sense that Monument Valley would be anywhere near Hill Valley. <laughs> but they shot there because they wanted to make a Western that they got to shoot in Monument Valley. They cared more about the Western than they cared about the Back to the Future movie. And ultimately, it makes the movie feel like, to me, like the pilot of a Back to the Future TV show where we're going on the adventures of Doc and Marty, where they go to a new time period each episode, but it doesn't feel nearly as ingrained in the characters and their destinies as the first or even the second movie, which have much more personal reasons for why they travel to the times they do. Yeah, I'm inclined to kind of agree with you, but I also am living at this point, like this, this franchise has already wooed me i love it so much by the time i'm getting to the third movie that i'm sort of just rooting for the filmmakers to make this fun movie and to just spend some more time with the characters because when you really look at it yeah the first movie finishes it out pretty strong for all the characters it's more about marty's parents than anything else and if you make a sequel all of a sudden it's about marty and it's about doc and they're amazing characters in movies, but we're not like delving deeply into their psychology or anything. Like they have to make up this stupid thing of Marty being called a chicken just for these movies to have any purpose. So like, I guess I'm coming at it more from the point of view of someone who's just like, yeah, let him go to the wild west. Let's see what happens. It'll be fun. It's more we'll get back more to the jokes. future. How bad can it be? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And from the same exact team, having a great time making this crazy movie. It, does look like it was really fun to make. Yeah. You get that feeling from every shot that people are having a really fun time making this movie. And that counts for something. I think in a professional sense, I, I do think that so much work was put into these movies, a level of work that may be unparalleled today because of the advances in like CGI. They were out there filming model trains exploding and filming horses and stuff. And I know that there's still people doing that, but like the level of craft, like you said, is unreal in this whole series. I mean, yeah, they built that whole town. Interiors too, which is uncommon, but that's, they shot everything there. Oh, I didn't know um, that. Should we talk about the plot? Yeah, we should. Let's talk about it. So the movie begins and one of my favorite moments, if not my favorite moment in all of the Back to the Future movies is the moment that Marty runs around the corner directly after other Marty has disappeared from 1955. I just think the music hit is perfect. Marty's run, his physical run is so great. And then Doc's reaction, like not knowing what the hell is going on, it just encapsulates the spirit of Back to the Future to me so well. And it's technically at the end of part two, which we should mention part two ends officially with a teaser trailer for part three with footage that they had shot and had quickly compiled into a teaser. Is it like the first post credit scene? Yeah, it sort of is. It's it, Watching it 30 years later, it kind of ruins the flow of the end of Back to the Future too because there's this great moment where Marty runs around the corner and surprises Doc and the camera pans out. And then it's like, next summer in theaters, we're going to the <laughs> West. And you're just kind of like, I don't need this anymore. I have the next DVD right here. But I consulted with our good friend, John, who was on our Mountains of the Moon podcast and who was old enough to appreciate these movies in the theater at the time. 
and he said that that teaser for Back to the Future 3 got people so hyped up because this was before the internet. This was before they could drop the teaser. And they also had to spread the word that there was another movie coming, not in four years, but in six months. So I feel like that marketing strategy has become pretty commonplace now. Like, we're going to hit you with another one in six months. Anyway, Back to the Future Part 3 opens up with the same scene and then cuts to kind of a quiet opening. Very slow music, especially compared to the second movie, which opens up with this crazy music with um, clouds flying through the clouds from the point of view of the DeLorean. So we're already kind of setting the tone of 3, which is that it's not going to be as crazy as 2. It's going to be a little more emotional than 2. And we're just going to start with a nice long shot of Doc's house and Doc and Marty sleeping after a long night in the Hill Valley rain. We should make mention, just since you've already twice now mentioned the music, Alan Silvestri. Oh, my God. Greatest. I think that the only other example of this that really matches is what John Williams did with things like Jaws and Star Wars, where the music doesn't really match exactly what you're seeing on screen, but it elevates it. The fact that it is kind of incongruous just makes it all the more powerful. Yeah, you start to imagine a different score for these movies. Like, imagine if they had done, like, a super 80s synth score for Back to the Future 1, and my brain starts going to bad places. There's just nothing is ever going to be this insane score for this movie. Even just like, like a rock score or something, but like Sylvester's score is full of so much adventure. It actually almost fits the Western setting better than the other two movies. Yeah, it's true. And especially when he starts giving it the Western flavor. I love it so much. Everybody in a major creative position on this film comes off of romancing the stone with Zemeckis. That's where Sylvester starts working with him and they go on to have, you know, a very prolific career together. Um, but I honestly think this is to date his best work, even though it's one of his first films. It doesn't quite bother me. Like sort of the way that Elfman's score bothered me for Nightbreed, like, which is just, for me, it was just a little too much, but here it's just the, I like perfect... that score though. I know you like that score, but I, I thought it didn't match the movie at all, but here, <laughs> perfectly matches the movie so the first 20 minutes of the movie are basically marty and doc kind of uncovering doc's past future marty gets the letter which also is such an amazing narrative device that western union was waiting 70 years to deliver a letter i love that and they've found out that he became a blacksmith and the plan is that they're gonna use the buried time machine to send marty back to 1985 but after uncovering the history of what actually happened to doc brown the plan changes so i actually think this is one of the weaker parts of the movie because it's really just them cleaning up the plot from back to the future part two yeah it doesn't really have that much tension there aren't really that the stakes aren't that high it's not like marty is trying to convince doc to let him go back to 1885 like if that was the thrust of this entire sequence there might be a little bit more propulsion but marty's kind of on board with okay i'll just go back to the present and 
it's just all this business of them finding the time machine and then finding the grave. And I don't think it works 100%. But there's just so many good little touches that make it watchable. I love the cut from Doc saying, we may have to blast and then blowing up the rock wall. And I love all the little business with Copernicus, the dog. He's wearing a little helmet as they walk through the mine shaft. And then Copernicus is the one that clues them in to Doc's grave. Copernicus has this kind of like dog vision, knowing that something bad has happened to Doc. So it's, they keep it light. They keep it fun enough to get us to where we need to go, which is the drive-in theater in Monument Valley. And we get our time travel sequence. This is one of my favorite, like this whole next 10 minutes of the movie i really love i think it, it it's when everything starts firing on all cylinders when the movie shows that it's kicking with gas i like the gag about the costume that doc thinks like cowboys should look like gene autry i also i wanted to mention i know you don't like that it's not geographically correct for hill valley but i do think it's really funny that they got the monument valley location and they decided to use it to build a dinky drive-in theater I just thought that was hilarious, and it's it's kind of a meta joke that they're using this famous epic location in the American landscape to plop down a drive-in theater that's really tacky. I have two things to say about that. One, <laughs> that would be an amazing place to go see a drive-in movie like an old Western. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Two, it's all in service of a tremendous visual gag when the mural of the native americans turns into the charging band of the native americans because back to the future is kind of a joke the whole thing is kind of a joke uh it's, it's kind of a, it's a very i mean it's always been a comedy part of the reason they fired eric stoltz is because he didn't play the movie funny enough there's always a gag should we pause for a second and just talk about uh michael j fox and christopher lloyd what a team there's a lot of stuff that works in back to the future. And there's a lot of things that you can point to as being the reason for a success, but certainly a huge amount of the credit has to go to these two because they are such a bizarre pairing and they are both so charismatic and so funny and so great together. It's one of the greatest movie dream teams of all time on paper. It's kind of weird. Like I know there's tons of jokes about like Marty and doc. How did that come to light? Like, what is that relationship? But it's an amazing relationship. It's a student and a teacher and they really work off of each other so well. It's a combination of their physical comedy and their heart and just all these little things that they do that just make them instantly likable and kind of relatable, but also kind of superheroes. So I have, I have, a theory on Marty McFly. The reason like his character is so universally beloved. Let's hear it. On the one hand, he is the coolest guy who has ever lived. He skateboards. He's in a rock and roll band. You know, he does whatever he wants. He's super cool. He uh, likes a good four by four. He wears that vest. Yeah. He wears that vest. He's like a paragon of coolness in some respects, but he's also a huge dork. Yeah. And is consistently a dork. And even when he's being cool, sometimes he's being cool by accident or actually being dorky, but it's perceived as cool. And so he remains a very humble character. He's not like, he's not a dick. You don't hate him for being who he is. You love him. Doc almost works the same way too, because he is so earnest and so unselfconscious about being exactly who he is, even though who he is is insane. That said, if I'm being honest, this movie could use a little Crispin Glover in it. 
It could use a little George McFly. That's a whole can of worms, man. That's a whole <laughs> can of worms that got, and it's it's his fault. All right, they would have had him. He didn't bite. Let's get back to the plot. We get the the recurring gag where Marty wakes up in the dark and his mom is mopping his head with a damp cloth. And we get the reveal that, oh, wait, no, it hasn't been a dream. He really is back in the West. And this is the old McFly ranch. I love that he has to repeat what she says when, when it gets revealed. And he's like, the McFly ranch. Just like he was like, the 27th floor. It's just such a good gag. But yeah. Tell me all about your thoughts of Seamus and Maggie. My thoughts are that as much as I like Michael J. Fox as Marty McFly, he is not pretty boring as Seamus. <laughs> He's no George McFly. I think he is not great at like all the other characters that he plays, except for maybe whatever his son's name is. He's too, his, his specific charm is like youthful energy. And so whenever he has to play these more down to earth versions of himself, they're not that much fun. I, I think Seamus is fine. I think he embodies the Irish pioneer spirit just well enough. And just not the Irish accent, not the Irish accent, but come on. Like this all goes back to my defense of the Monument Valley thing. My defense of the movie. It's all kind of a joke. One of the big jokes here is like, hey, let's put Michael J. Fox in this ridiculous 1880s farmer outfit and give him an Irish accent. And yeah, screw it. His wife is Lorraine. It doesn't matter. Like nothing really matters. And it's all in service to the gags. There's a whole cottage industry of people picking apart the plot holes in Back to the Future. Really, one of the only ones that bothers me is that Seamus is married to an ancestor of Lorraine. She's not an ancestor of Lorraine. The, she clearly is. No, she's it's not. the same actress. No, the filmmakers have said that they wanted Leah Thompson because really it's all about the gag. So they just have explained it as the McFly men are attracted to the physical types of Lorraine. So Maggie just happens to look a lot like Lorraine. That's all it is. There's no incest there's no weird relationship between Marty and Doc. It's just all good family fun, okay? Enough. How do you feel about Leah Thompson? I mean, in this in this movie, she doesn't have a lot to do. She's kind of doing this joke role. I think the only reason she's in this movie is for the one scene that we just talked about. And that's kind of a bummer. She gets pretty overshadowed by the female lead, who we'll get to shortly. But I'm glad she made an appearance, and obviously she's a very huge part of part one. And yeah, she's great in that. And part two, she gets that whole like that one like powerhouse scene in the casino, which is both funny and heartbreaking and really scary. She gets shafted in this movie a little bit and gets replaced by a person that's coming in in the third installment. But it makes sense for the doc aspect of it. Now you mentioned before that you were a big fan of Howard the Duck. I am a huge fan of Howard the Duck. Because that's like one of her other major credits is the female lead in that film. Great movie. Highly recommended. Do you think that movie killed her career? No, she was in Back to the Future. Come on. Howard the, doesn't Howard the Duck come after then that? Somewhere in there. Back to the Future is 85. Howard the Maybe Duck. Maybe Howard the Duck is like 86. I don't know. I think she gets Howard the Duck on the back of this. I mean, she had been kind of in Spielberg's camp for a while. Yeah, okay. it's Howard the Duck's 86. 
She was in Jaws 3D and then she was in Red Dawn. And I wouldn't be surprised if Spielberg brings her on to Back to the Future. And then obviously Spielberg and Lucas are good friends. So maybe that's how she gets involved with that one. Or maybe she's just a hot commodity because Back to the Future is a huge movie. So the next year she has Howard the Duck. Howard the Duck is definitely in this same filmmaking world of like high budget action adventure. Probably a lot of the same people were like looking at it. And yeah, it probably did. It probably did. To be honest, I don't want to make it sound like her career is over. Like she gets plenty of work. She does a lot of stuff. She just isn't the breakout star. You might've thought she would have been after these films. No. And yeah, I mean, Howard the Duck is a legendary colossal failure. So I'm sure that that totally ruined her stock. And (laughs) I just want to, I ride hard for Howard the Duck. I think it's such a creative, fun, stupid movie and you should check it out if you've never seen it before. And do you think it's better than Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles? I definitely think it's better than Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. <laughs> Just want that on the record again. Yes, absolutely. Are you kidding me? Let's move on. So the next thing that happens is uh, Marty makes it to Hill Valley. Uh, he goes to the saloon to look for Doc, and we get introduced to our antagonist, Mad Dog Tannen, Buford Tannen, played by Tom Wilson, who, in my opinion is the secret sauce of these films and maybe secretly the best performance in all of them. I think he's pretty great. I I am not going to hand him best performance. I think that's sort of a shared between Michael J and Christopher Lloyd, but he definitely makes these movies insanely more watchable than they already would be, especially if they had just had like just kind of a boring old guy. It wouldn't be the same, but it's so great to have Biff. The thing that I have to credit Wilson with is that he's probably the best at playing all the different versions of his character because he plays so many different Biffs and they're all funny and they're all great. When you compare him to like Seamus, it's uh, unquestionable that he's amazing at doing all this makeup work where he's and like even the age work is really good. Like he's pretty convincing as an old man in part two and like and even a middle aged man in part two. Yeah, middle aged man. I'm assuming Mad Dog is like in his 30s. That's kind of what it seems like. So yeah, he kind of plays every age. It's it's amazing. Now, he's lots of great. I think Mad Dog is my favorite of the various Biffs. My favorite is Trump Biff (laughs) from part two. The great thing about Tom Wilson is he has much less of a career than someone like Leah Thompson. He never really finds footing after this film. He was in Freaks and Geeks. That's his other big thing which is uh, admittedly very small today, hugely influential. It's kind of a shame. He should come back and do some other Apatow stuff these days. But what I wanted to say is that he's, he's nothing like Biff at all as a person. I feel like Michael J. Fox and Marty McFly are kind of intertwined, but Tom Wilson and Biff could not be more different. When you listen to him in interviews, he's more, the, the character he's most like is weird, neutered 1985 Biff after the past has been changed. (laughs) Yeah, he was just method acting. He's great. And he's pretty good as Mad Dog. I'd say Mad Dog is probably one of my lesser favorite Biffs, but still very good Biff. Still top-notch antagonist. It's cool that they went a little different with this Biff. Like, he's still stupid, but he's also way more dangerous and calculated in a way. He has my single favorite Biff moment, which is when he thinks that he's shot Marty and he does this little prance bow down the street. Yeah. It just, it kills me. It cracks me up so much. He's definitely the scariest Biff. When he's pointing a gun at Marty in the saloon in this scene, 
he seems like the kind of person that will actually kill people. Well, and then he follows it up by hanging him. Like, I mean, this is a pretty major action scene here. He drags him through the town and almost hangs him, but Marty is saved by Doc at the last minute. Great character reintroduction. Yeah, his cool scoped rifle. It's just like, <laughs> it's like unnecessarily scientific rifle. We don't even know why it has all these attachments. He can't help himself. Even though he knows he shouldn't interfere with the past, he can't help himself. Yeah. And it's kind of a new doc. Have we we haven't really seen doc at this point interact with any sort of like danger or antagonist. Oh, most of his his things that he's had to overcome in the series so far are like physical obstacles like the sure. electricity getting unplugged or Biff stealing. There's like all these things that happen to Doc, but this is the first time we see him actually interacting with an antagonist and he's tough. He holds his own against Buford. It's pretty awesome. This whole movie is set up basically to be Doc Brown's story. I think it really benefits from that, partly because Christopher Lloyd is so wonderful in the role and partly because it's a new direction to take the series. Doc has always been sort of the comic relief and to make him the emotional centerpiece is a really bold choice and 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 a good one. And it's just it's great to see him not only freaking out about what Marty has to do next. He's taking he has got some agency in this one and I really like that. And so there's this whole thing about how Biff had a horse that Doc put a horseshoe on and now Biff or Buford I mean wants $80 from Doc and Marty realizes this is the conflict that's going to lead to Doc's death. So Doc gets Marty out of the bad situation and we're back. Now Doc has a a lab basically in town. The more things change, the more they stay the same. There's always (laughs) a lab. He's got his giant steam powered refrigerator makes the grossest ice cube of all time. (laughs) Yeah. And we're back to, the plotting that is so integral to back to the future. We have a lot of stuff at the beginning of this movie. We've got the kind of the cleanup from part two and then we've got the travel back and we've got a couple of gag scenes and whatnot. But then when we actually reunite doc and Marty in very short order, we set up the stakes. We know what's going to happen to doc, when it's going to happen, who's going to do it. And we also establish the obstacles that they have to overcome to get out of there because we learn about there not being fuel and we realize that they're going to have to use the train and what that's going to mean and when the train's going to come. All this stuff happens within like two or three scenes. It is remarkably efficient screenwriting. Yeah. And I remember watching it as a kid and just knowing exactly what was going on. It's very accessible to anyone. It's really well done, especially for a convoluted science fiction narrative. It's amazing. Uh, Do you want to talk about Hill Valley at all since we arrived there pretty recently? Like what I we've been talking about all the different incantations of like Biff and of Lorraine. But like what about Hill Valley? What makes Hill Valley so special? I love how in part one we see how the actions of Marty in 55 affect 85. He knocks over the tree and now it's not Twin Pines Mall, it's Lone Pine Mall. There's a continuity there that feels interesting. And so that when you get to know parts of it and see how it's changed, all of that feels interesting. It's textural. It's not like super critical, but I like all of that stuff. 1885 Hill Valley doesn't feel like it has anything to do with those other two towns. 
it's just like a Western town. They didn't really do the work of like establishing that courthouse square, which you kind of really understand in the first two. Even in the future that's there. And yet like the courthouse is on the edge of town and it doesn't feel like it has the same continuity. Well, and it's like you said earlier, it doesn't really feel like Southern California, which I kind of think is the basis of Hill Valley. It really feels like one of those kind of shitty towns, little bit middle, lower middle class, somewhere in the valley, basically, like somewhere in a, a shittier part of the greater Los Angeles area. That's how I always imagine Hill Valley. Totally. And the Hill Valley of 1885 is like a cattle town in the middle of Arizona or Northern California or something. It's not what you'd expect the Hill Valley from the first two movies to be. But again, I don't really care. It's fine. They wanted it to be this Western and it's a fun Western. So that's all that really matters. And the movie doesn't really dwell too much on the town um, because it's got bigger fish to fry. The next thing that happens is as Doc and Marty are scouting how they're going to push the car with a train to get it to the required 88 miles per hour. What a great choice for a speed, by the way. 88. It's fast, but it's not like insanely fast. It's memorable. I don't know why they picked that number. It was brilliant. It was the best choice they could have done. It looks like two infinity signs. Oh, yeah. I want to give a quick shout out also to the scene where they try to take the DeLorean by horseback to 88. I just think that's so funny <laughs> that they're out on the plains with the a DeLorean. great gag. Yeah. And it's just such commitment to such a, a throwaway gag. It's just great. And also the scene with the engineer where they're asking the engineer, how fast can she go? And the, the engineer's like, I don't know. I've been up to 50 before. Like it's so many great little moments where they're just trying to figure out how to get this stuff done. And all this stuff is good. You know, just developing the primary obstacle they have to overcome, which is getting the car up to speed, which requires them to do it at a specific time in a specific place. And all that will come back. But it's also leading to the introduction of Mary Steenburgen as Clara. A new character in a franchise that doesn't have a lot of characters, if you count the actors playing different characters as the same character. They keep it really small, which I think is another charm of these movies. You're getting to know a very specific set of actors in different makeup and in different situations, but it's still just the same five or six people. Well, and it makes it when they introduce a new character, it makes it feel like a big deal. Although this movie has lots of new characters, you know, even someone like the saloon keeper is new. It doesn't really keep the same cast quite as much. It would have been funny if they had, like, kept the same guy who used to run the soda fountain. Yeah, well, I wonder why they didn't do that. I guess they didn't want it to be too too ridiculous. I, and I know that a lot of those guys in the uh, saloon are, like, old-school Western actors. So that was sort of, like, a shout-out to those guys. They were all, like, TV Western dudes. But, yeah, this is really the only major character in the entire franchise that gets introduced outside of part one. And she's a big one. So Claire is introduced as Doc's love interest. Mary Steenburgen is, you know, a big actress at the time. She has one of the most tremendous breakouts of all time. She's in a small role in a movie. And then her second role is the lead in a movie called Time After Time. This movie has, in my opinion, the best premise for a movie of all time. It's not the best movie, but it has a tremendous premise which is that Sherlock Holmes is hunting Jack the Ripper, who goes and steals H.G. Wells' time machine to escape him 
and they all wind up in 1970s San Francisco. Back to the Future prequel. There you go. Also, weirdly, a first draft for Star Trek for The Voyage Home, same writer and director, and a lot of the same jokes. But important part is it's a pretty big movie in its lead role for Mary Steenberg in her second at bat. And then her third film, she's playing the supporting role in Melvin and Howard, and she wins Best Supporting Actress at the Oscars. All that stuff happens about a decade before this. Um, and her 80s are kind of light for credits that have lasted the test of time. But I think she's great in this movie. I think she's a brilliant piece of casting. I think she's really fun and really funny. The thing that works so well about her is that she and Doc just make sense. Yeah, they are. They have so much chemistry in the weirdest way possible. You, as soon as you see her and the way that she acts, you, you never question it. And Doc is not, has never been presented to us as a romantic character. And yet there's never a moment where it feels forced or false. They could have easily made Doc a celibate character and no one would have questioned it. But instead they go this route of like, no, Doc wants to get some too. And this is the perfect lady for him. They're a match made in heaven. Well, and they do all that fun setup where he won't go pick her up from the train because he doesn't want to change history. And, and he knows that she's going to fall in love with him. And yet the second they meet, he can't help himself. It's so funny that he's just completely abandons all of that stuff about not wanting to alter the timeline. Although then again, he can never help himself. He's always altering the timeline. <laughs> he just, he can't, he just, he needs to meddle. Yeah, it's true. He's got a medal. He couldn't even keep the, the letter ripped up from the first Back to the Future. That's true. Yeah. And they they make this whole point in this movie about how he has to overcome the heart over the brain. But it's like, he already did that. Again, <laughs> it just ties back to the fact that they just wanted to make a Western with the fun characters. You know, all this character stuff is kind of baloney. Speaking of. Yes. Speaking of. We get the next sequence is the festival the big clock tower festival and then we also get the introduction of our sort of second half of the second act plot point which is marty's character defect don't ever call him a chicken or in 1885 don't call him yellow they introduced this in part two apropos of nothing in part one i could have sworn it was in part one as well but that was just my brain playing tricks on me it's only in part two and it does not work <laughs> it's pretty bad it's like the worst screenwriting instinct to be like <laughs> our character has dimension look at his flaw yeah and it goes kind of against marty's character in a way like you said he doesn't really care about what other people think of him at least in the first one he's just trying to get back to the future he's a stand-up guy he'll stand up to biff but not because biff is calling him out just because that's the right thing to do. He doesn't get triggered by Biff. He just has to deal with Biff and the bullshit. So it's just such a weird character trait that they've added. And I guess it's all to build up to the end with Needles and how Marty needs to make better decisions so he doesn't ruin his own life. Well, like we already briefly mentioned, Back to the Future Part 1 is really George McFly's story. His is the emotional arc of the film, and Marty is there to kind of guide him through that. And when they start making sequels and Marty and Doc transition to being the actual, you know, main characters, the protagonists in the true sense of the word, 
who have to carry the film, not just plot mechanically, but emotionally, they start scrambling for ways to make them do that because frankly, it just doesn't suit the characters particularly well. And so this feels like a really shallow attempt to create some kind of emotional arc and catharsis for Marty's character. And the thing that really bums me out about it is the movie has another arc for him that it toys with, but it just doesn't really commit to, which is him letting Doc go. Because it sets it up over and over again that, that like, Doc doesn't want him to go back for him. And then even after he finds out, you know, he's going to die, Doc still wants to stay in the past. And it fits his coming-of-age story. As you get older, you have to say goodbye to your friends. People have different life goals and different aspirations. There's a really powerful emotional feeling there, but the movie just doesn't commit to it. It doesn't make that part of its climax when Marty goes back to the future by himself it feels like it's almost by accident that doc had no chance to get into the DeLorean and then they get reunited anyway. And so it could have been a really powerful arc for his character to go on. And instead we get this pretty flimsy one to work with instead. Yeah. Like imagine if the last time you see doc is him riding the hoverboard off with uh, Mary Steenberg, that that would have been kind of cool, but instead specifically if he had the chance to make it into the car, right. And not just not just if he had abandoned her, but like rescues her and then has the chance and instead floats away. If I had, I really like his speech in the very last scene of this movie where he's just kind of like the future is whatever you need to make for it. Maybe if he had said that when they were still in 1885, I don't know. But you're totally right. There's better ways to handle these character development things. But basically, they just go with kind of the easiest way out. Marty just gets triggered if you call him chicken. That's it. Michael J. Fox is pretty good at playing those moments where he gets mad. It's really funny. And it's very memorable. I'll always remember people calling Marty chicken. It, it even overlapped and I thought it was in the first movie, but it's not. So clearly there's something strong about it, but it's just so stupid. I also wanted to quickly mention at the festival, I do appreciate the attention to detail with a lot of the gags in this movie. Like the Frisbee. That's like a true thing too. Frisbee was a pie plate manufacturer on like Yale campus in the late 1800s. They would throw the pie plates around and that's how it got started. But yeah, I just love that Marty never gets over the fact that he's not in the 80s. He's always just like (laughs) walking up to random people being like, hey, look frisbee (laughs) and they're just like what and he just never gets the hint that he's just got (laughs) to act like he's from where he is but yeah at the festival we have a lot of goings on with buford buford comes through and makes another pretty scary show he messes with clara he gets into a thing with marty there's a lot going on at this festival although i also think there's another narrative mistake here which is that we learn that this is when the deadly shot would have taken place and they avoid it. And it kind of deflates the stakes a little bit. It does kind of throw things off because you're like, who's in trouble? Is it Marty? Is it Doc? I kind of think they should have just kept it Doc the whole time. The other problem is sort of the main hurdle they have to overcome is the time travel element. They don't need to defeat Buford. Part two does this much better where they have to get the book from Biff before they can time travel and it feels like this movie needs something like that but instead it kind of has to keep manufacturing ways to keep tannin in the story maybe if biff 
or if Buford had really screwed Marty over and made him truly angry and made Marty want to get revenge. Or had hijacked the DeLorean or had stolen something they needed or had kidnapped Clara. I sort of like that Marty has to make a decision in the end over whether he's going to go out and do the battle with, with Mad Dog. And I like the moment where he realizes, oh, he's just an asshole. I'm not going out there. I don't have to. No, I don't care what people think. That is a good bit of dialogue there. I think that Back to the Future is sort of an anti-bully series of movies. And I think it does a really good job at showing you these are blowhards. This is a family of blowhards that is just constantly messing with the actual cool people in the world like Marty and Doc. And like, don't let them get to you. If they get in your way, get rid of them. And if they're truly physically assaulting you, you should defend yourself. But at the end of the day, one of the big messages of Back to the Future is like, don't let bullies get you down and don't let bullies screw with you. And I think that the ultimate expression of that kind of is a mad villain Western guy yelling at you to come outside and duel him and you deciding, I don't have to go out there. I don't care what these people think. I'm not going to go risk my life. I mean, the classic, like, meet me at the flagpole at 3 p.m. is just a modern day, you know, showdown at high noon. Exactly. So I think they kind of weave that together nicely. But your point still stands of Marty's ultimate character flaw literally being that he gets triggered if someone calls him specifically a chicken. (laughs) And then the fact that because they saved Doc, the movie kind of has to come up with a new set of stakes and then spend time explaining them to us, which is something the other two movies do a much better job of streamlining and, and, and... It just feels a little clunkier. Other things that we get at the festival, we get a ZZ Top, who, in my opinion, are no Huey Lewis in the news. No way. And their song isn't as good either. But I I do do like like the Western version of it. I love it when they spin their guitars. And I know that that's like their stupid trademark. When I was a kid, I didn't know that. And I just thought it was cool (laughs) that they did that. I thought it was like an actual weird Western thing. Oh, they had (laughs) guitars that you could spin back then. Cool. But it's just a stupid joke. I also really, really love when they set up the duel when uh, Mad Dog says, I do my killing before breakfast. And then Marty's like, 8.30, I do my killing after breakfast. It's just such a perfect line for Marty. He just is just kind of winging it and saying stupid things, but it comes off cool somehow. My favorite part of that is when it gets called back right before the duel. And they're at the campsite with with Mad Dog. And he's like, I'm hungry. (laughs) so ridiculous he is good as mad dog i'll give him a little more credit so doc kind of realizes that he's got to let clara go he's been kind of sticking his toes in the water with her took her to the dance not a good move doc if you want to abandon her and he's developed pretty massive feelings we get the scene where they are under the stars and they're really bonding and it's very clear that she's one in a million for doc but unfortunately He's got to let her go so that he can go back, back to the future. Now's as good a time to mention as any. One of the things that I really love about Doc Brown is that he's the ultimate hero scientist. And I love pro science science fiction. It's weirdly rare. Most science fiction tends to have a kind of anti-science bent. It's always cautioning us to not go too quickly, to not explore too deeply, And Doc is the whole time is like, even though he kind of regrets inventing time travel, it's still always a firm proponent for the value of science. He loves science. 
Ridiculously so. I think he makes a great like role model for kids. I feel like we had a real wealth of positive science role models in our youth. We did. I mean, obviously Bill Nye. I, he's hit such a huge one, but God, I, I hope there's still are those things for kids today. I mean, there's the science of Minecraft YouTubers that kids are watching nowadays. <laughs> They're learning all about how to build the best fort in Minecraft possible. So Doc breaks up with Clara and he goes to a very dark, dark place. Possibly the darkest we ever see in a Back to the Future movie. He goes to the bar in town and he screws up the entire plan. The plan was simply they're going to rob the train, take it over and use it to go back. But instead he goes and gets drunk and they do this weird thing where instead of just drinking all night, like a normal person, he doesn't drink. He just stares at the shot glass of whiskey and laments all of his problems. And then in the morning, Marty shows up and is like, oh my God, did he drink all night? And they're all like, no, he's just been staring at the glass. And then he finally takes the one shot and it knocks him out as if he had been drinking all night. Always thought that was kind of a weird choice. Why did they, why did they not just have him get drunk? I think it's, it's just like comical reversals, but it's just not that funny. You know, the other problem with this is that Marty has already decided that he's not going to fight Biff. And he then has to re-decide that again because of Doc at the saloon. Because he's there. It's true. Like, we've already dealt with that and resolved it. And now we have to deal with it again. Yeah, but he called him Yella. You know? <laughs> called him Yella. Uh, yeah, it's really stupid. But it's fun. Again, it's fun to watch. It's always fun to watch. It's never like, what? This sucks. Like, you're always having a good time. And yeah, the wake-up juice is amazing. I always loved that idea of wake-up juice. I have a fun fact about the wake-up juice. They did a novelization of Back to the Future Part 3. You've read a movie novelization before, right? I was a big fan of the movie novelization when I was a kid. I would get them out of the library. I'd read them all the time. In the novelization, the ingredients of the wake-up juice are as follows. Olive juice... Tabasco sauce, cayenne pepper, chili peppers, onion, and mustard seed. And I got to say, it sounds pretty good to me, actually. I like a spicy <laughs> kick. I like all those things, except, except for maybe olive juice. No, you have to make some wake-up juice before our next episode and report <laughs> back. So there's this whole gag of the wake-up juice, and it's sort of weird that we're, we're doing this in the third part of a trilogy at the climax but whatever we're having a good time it feels like a lot of unsupported slapstick and then we get the big showdown i wanted to briefly mention the cinematographer of this movie and i thought this would probably be the best time just because this is when the cinematography gets the most showy with some clear allusions to sergio leone's spaghetti westerns even though it's like weirdly toned down from those and that actually kind of fits the narrative that I'm going to expound here for a second. This film and the entire trilogy was shot by Dean Cundy, who also worked with Zemeckis on uh, Romancing the Stone. Basically, again, everybody who works with Zemeckis starts with him there. He had been in the industry for a long time, but had been kind of a, a nobody cinematographer. His biggest credits by far were John Carpenter's films, and he did a lot of B-movies and horror films and sci-fi films, um, but was like a steady, solid journeyman cinematographer. 
after his work with Zemeckis, though, on these films and on uh, Who Framed Roger Rabbit, uh, it leads to him basically becoming the de facto cinematographer for special effects heavy films in the 90s. He shoots Jurassic Park. He shoots Apollo 13. And he also eventually goes on to be Nancy Myers' DP for a while. Uh, his career falls off in the 2000s. He's still making a few things here and there. But he has this very clean style that I associate with the 90s and with some of my favorite movies from when I was a kid that I kind of miss. And the showdown serves to highlight it just in the fact that he does the Leon shots, but he does them less extreme than Leon does because he just wants to shoot everything like really cleanly, effectively, beautifully composed, but not ostentatious, not w- without a bunch of cinematographic tricks. It, it, and it makes it feel real in a very movie way. You know what I mean? It feels real, but it's also grand. In a very movie way. It's the imagery that I associate with movies. Right, exactly. I love his work. I miss his work. I would love to see a return to that style, although I just don't know if it's possible anymore, just the way the movies are shot and the technology that's used. So we do this showdown. We get our amazing walk down the street after Buford shoots Marty. Just, again, cracks me up. And the callback to part two where we saw the Clint Eastwood clip. I guess Marty was paying a lot of attention at that moment. And then there's the race to the train and the hijacking of the train, which is pretty exciting. We get my favorite line of dialogue in the movie. And even though it's played heavily in the trailers, too, I just I love it when they uh, stick up the the engineer and the engineer's like, is this a hijacking? And And Doc's like, no, it's a science experiment. Yeah, that's a great line. And we kind of learn that there's this plan to make the train go faster and faster with these really cool, specialized, colorful logs that I was always really attached to as a kid. I like the color coding of the smoke, too. Yeah, it's so, so great. And meanwhile, while this is all happening, Clara has a little moment where she was going to leave town. But then on the train, she happens to come across two gentlemen that were sitting in the bar who... Just so happened to be talking all about how sad Doc was about having to leave her. So she opts out of the train ride and goes to find Doc and Marty. I like that she's an active participant in the climax. I think she's generally pretty well written as a character, even though she gets stuck in a damsel in distress role right at the end of the set piece. That said, I think that this is the weakest climax of the three films. It's funny, I was trying to articulate why, because it's very similar to one in that, like, they have an approaching deadline. In this case, it's the bridge and stuff keeps going wrong and people are in physical danger and they need to overcome it. But the ideas just don't feel nearly as inventive or interesting as they do in one. I think that the physical element of it is pretty exciting. And I got to say, in terms of the three movies i think the weakest might be i guess the second one it's it's when they're in the tunnel with biff in the car which i i always thought that that was pretty low stakes compared to these other two i don't know i like marty skateboarding behind the car though yeah but it's just it's not the same ticking clock and biff is almost too evil in that one moment i don't know so this one wins on that one but obviously the the goat is the first movie because it's just perfect and yeah, I agree with you that Clara does get a lot to do here. She 
She has the agency to decide to go back to Doc. She has the agency to decide to jump onto the train. Like, she's not only the damsel in distress. She's also an active participant in this crazy action sequence. Until she slips, and then Doc has to rescue her. But, yeah, Marty goes back. You know why I think this doesn't work? You never think they're going to fail. Even in the first movie, you know he's going to go back. The fun of a Back to the Future climax is seeing how it happens, all the crazy obstacles that happen and how they are overcome. And the obstacles are more surprising in part one. The way the electrical cable like gets unplugged at one point and then unplugs on the other, compared to this where they're just walking along the runner rail on the engine car of the train and then somebody slips. And that's kind of it. That's like the only thing that happens. It's a lot less engaging and exciting and it doesn't compound in the way that, you know, Doc walking out onto the ledge and the ledge breaking and he grabs onto the thing and then he drops the thing and it's hanging on his pants and all that stuff keeps building on top of each other. Yeah, that's true. And I guess the Biff thing in the second movie has a lot of that because first it's on the dashboard, then it's on the blah, blah, blah. But I think that what brings it up for me is just the sheer scale of it, that it's this crazy train that's going really, really fast with green smoke. Like, I think the spectacle is more than enough for me to enjoy the entire thing. Well, and Zemeckis talks about how, like, when he shot the sequence, he's like, oh, I understand why directors love trains so much. They're so clear as like a cinematic device. They only go in one direction. They're on rails. Yeah. There's nothing bad can happen to the train until it goes off a cliff, which brings me to a very important part of this movie, which is the slow-mo destruction of the train. You just revel in that train exploding and they don't even cut to doc looking at it or anything it's just like they know you want to see the train go off the edge of the cliff and explode and they just give you a nice long take and it's just so sweet when it hits the ground and explodes i just thank you zemeckis (laughs) yeah it's a solid thing to have happen so wrapping up the movie yeah we go back to 1985 we reunite with jennifer played by elizabeth shue who gets nothing to do in this movie we get our weird end wrap up of Marty's arc when he doesn't race needles. And we learned in part two that that one instance is the thing that undoes his entire life. Needles played by Flea. Flea. And then Doc returns in his Jules Verne train. Yeah. How do you feel about this Jules Verne train? Again, I like it conceptually. Like there's something wrong with it. It kind of weakens Marty's farewell to the Doc. And his whole thing about leaving him behind. And it feels just, again, like this was an episode of the Back to the Future TV show where Doc and his family travel around in their flying train. (laughs) I mean, it's kind of nice that you get a sense of Doc's future, that he's got a family, he's got a cool train, and... His kids are creepy as fuck. Yeah, the kids are weird. Did you ever see that thing where they point out the weird little gesture the kid is doing? No, I I don't think so. Maybe. When Doc is giving his final speech, one of his kids is like making weird faces and like pointing at his own privates. And the general theory is that he, (laughs) 
he had to go to the bathroom and was signaling the studio handler. Check it out on YouTube. Check out that scene and watch the little blonde kid because he's doing this weird stuff with his hands. Uh, Great. I never noticed it, but I, I got pointed out. So check that out as a special feature. Yeah, I mean, it's like I was saying, it's it's a nice little wrap up, but it is a little too cutesy in a way. I will say that for all my criticisms of the film, I do think this movie works. I think it is an eight out of 10. I think it is a lot of fun. Definitely worth the rewatch if you haven't seen it in a while. And miles ahead of what we generally get for summer movie fare. Especially sequels. Yeah, especially sequels. I mean, it's crazy. All three movies feel completely distinct and yet indispensable from each other. And all three are worth your time. What what better way to celebrate the 30th anniversary of the third installment than to rewatch? So let's cycle back around to the question that we teased at the top of the episode, which is why does this work? What is it about Back to the Future, this movie and the franchise as a whole that has made it what it is? We've gone over a lot of it already. Doc and Marty are two amazing characters that you just want to keep watching. And and as well as like George and Biff and Lorraine, like all the characters are great. And I think it's great that they keep it on that small scale. We're only in Hill Valley. We're only with the McFly and Tannen families. I think that that's part of the charm is that they have this ridiculous time machine, but they only use it to go into like a 10 mile radius with the same 12 characters. I also just think that it really taps into something very intrinsic about the American identity, specifically within the 20th century. We're always looking backwards. We're always looking forwards. We love our cultural touchstones of the old West. We love our rock and roll. We love our fifties diners. And we love pretending that we're ever going to have consumer flying cars and this movie just taps into all of that it's got it all in such a nice package my theory is it comes down to craft and i want to distinguish craft from artistry i do think that there are elements of back to the future that transcend themselves and become works of art But I think ultimately this movie is a testament to the power of impeccable craftsmanship. Everything in these movies is so perfectly pitched and so perfectly executed. It elevates something that would otherwise be strange and off-putting and upsetting. I don't have to make any jokes about Doc and Marty's relationship. It is clearly weird. There's a whole animated TV show that was built on the premise of how weird that relationship is. John Mulaney has a great joke about how weird that relationship is. It's weird. Not to mention Marty's relationship with his mother in the first movie. That's it's also all that shit is weird. It shouldn't work. And it does because it's all so well crafted. And I don't just mean the filmmaking, although the filmmaking is again, impeccable from the way the screenplay is structured to the way the sequences are put together to way everything is shot. I also mean things like the performances. I don't know that I think Michael J. Fox is a tremendous actor. I don't think Marty is a particularly complex or difficult character, but he is so well executed as a screen icon, as a piece of acting craftsmanship that it doesn't matter. He is immediately a role model and something relatable, something iconic. I almost think that Back to the Future is one of the 
problems that lead to the kind of formulaic blockbuster filmmaking of the 90s. Because people think they can just do it. Right. If, if it is just a matter of crafting it perfectly, no matter what it is, then it doesn't then you don't have to worry about coming up with good or compelling stories. What about the release of this movie? Let's talk about it. So this movie comes out May 25th, Memorial Day weekend. We're a little bit early. We're recording this at the uh, middle of April. And I wanted to mention that the VHS of Back to the Future 2 was released on May 22nd, 1990, three days before Memorial Day weekend. So the hype was very real. They were doing triple screenings of all three movies, kind of like how they do with the Marvel movies now. And people were super hyped. If Solo showed us anything Maybe you need a little bit more than four months in between your movie releases. <laughs> yeah, it's true. Budget was $40 million. Gross opening weekend, $19 million. Now on a holiday weekend, it makes less money than Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles on a non-holiday weekend. That's not great. It's not a great place for them to start. It ultimately grosses $88 million domestic, $244 worldwide, which is a hit. It's a respectable amount, but it is the lowest of the three Back to the Future movies by close to $100 million. So it's a pretty big drop-off from the other two. I think part of that is the fact, A, what you just said, it was too much Back to the Future all at once. And B, I just think people were not that into the idea of a Western. Westerns were kind of out of fashion at this point. It was not cool to do a Western. And I think that that might have been a bit of a risk that they took on that. Ultimately, I guess it's up for us to decide whether or not it paid off. You know, they made their money back and it certainly didn't tarnish the brand in the way something like Godfather 3 tarnishes the Godfather brand. We'll right. talk about that later this year, listeners, so stay tuned. Oh, yeah. Let's do the ranking game. Yeah, so I'm going to take my answer from the last time we recorded this because I remember the actual rank, but I said 17. 17. So one thing I noticed interesting here is I looked them up. Part one, number one film of 1985. Part two, number six film of 1989. Part three, the 11th film of 1990. So it dropped by five spots each time. So theoretically, Back to the Future 4 would have been the 16th of 1995 or whatever. <laughs> yeah. Or maybe whenever they come out with it, which we can talk about. Yeah, let's quickly, <laughs> let's just touch on it quickly. Um, So Back to the Future is one of these rare franchises that seems sort of untouchable. Bob Gale and Robert Zemeckis maintain creative control and they've said no there will be no more and there was plenty of other stuff there was a ride there was a cartoon show there's been video games there's obviously a ton of merchandising but they say there will be no more films do you think back to the future should return i am adamantly against this idea to me back to the future is like such a childhood thing to me and it's almost on the level of calvin and Hobbes, which is another really famous piece of entertainment that hasn't really been screwed with since it was over and i kind of think that the series rests on marty and doc's shoulders and if you were to try to recreate that magic it just wouldn't be the same so i'm kind of like don't mess with it i generally agree my one feeling about Back to the Future is it kind of ruined time travel movies, which are a really fun subgenre, but it did it so iconically that it's hard to conceive of another family-friendly adventure time travel movie that isn't a Back to the Future film. In the same way that it would be hard to do a family-friendly adventure pirate movie that wasn't a Pirates of the Caribbean film. And I'd love to get some more time travel movies. 
Yeah, I I understand that. I just think that they can they can do it. I think it just needs to pass out of the cultural mind, basically. Will Back to the Future ever pass from the cultural consciousness? I think that it will eventually ascend to the stars in a like <laughs> like Sean Connery at the end of Dragonheart. Yeah, all of the movies have been made before, they'll all be made again and we'll always find an inventive way to tell the same story again. I think Back to the Future obviously was super strong and resonates with lots of people and is still relevant today simply because of the 2015 aspect of it. People were talking about it then because it was the year that they had predicted. So I think it's still very much there, but one day it will be a historical artifact and we'll find a new way to tell a time travel story in a really good way. I I think I agree with you. I just I feel like if anyone did it on the level that they do remakes nowadays, the Ghostbusters remake, the just ridiculous Pirates sequels. Like, it would just be a mess. You're not going to get Zemeckis and Gale creating this stuff again. It's going to be the the Acura commercial version <laughs> of Back to the Future. Do you really want that? No. No, I don't. I don't want that. <laughs> Let's wrap things up with a quick discussion of 1990 and where this fits in our narratives and themes. What, what do you got? Uh, there's a couple things that come to mind. One, obviously, the integration of digital effects, the changing film technologies that we already talked about in Hunt for Red October, that we talked about a little bit in Nightbreed and, and maybe some of the other films as well. That's obviously a 1990 and the 90s generally are a big transition point. Zemeckis has always pushed the envelope when it comes to integrating new technologies into his films. This is no exception. Should we talk about the Polar Express? <laughs> Let's Beowulf, not. man. Beowulf. Oh, God. And Back to the Future, like, you know, it has a tremendous amount of different effects, disciplines, model work, optical effects, digital effects. If that is something that we start to really see come into the fore in 1990 and, and be one of the things that define the year, I think Back to the Future is probably the foremost example of that. Just because that's where Zemeckis positioned himself in the industry as the person to really push that forward. We've got collision of time and culture. We talked about 1990 being both a slightly nostalgic or a year of reminiscences where we've got some movies that are kind of backwards looking, but then we've got other things that are sort of forward looking and are trying to see what the new millennium is going to look like. I think that Back to the Future is very much in that camp where some of it wants to reflect on the century before and some of it wants to reflect on the century to come. Part three doesn't do that nearly as much as the first and second movies it kind of just wants to have its fun little Western story. And I think that um, Back to the Future is also such a touchstone of 80s culture. And it's almost weird in a way. It kind of knows it. The 80s were so much more self-knowledgeable. They already knew what made the 80s what they were. Like there's the retro 80s cafe in the 2015 in Back to the Future Part 2, and it's pretty spot on. If I walked into that retro 80s cafe, I'd be like, yeah, that's an 80s cafe, and I don't know how you would do that nowadays for, for this era that we live in. I guess there wouldn't be a cafe. It'd be a Capital One bank. Right. This is kind of closing the 80s in a way. It's a huge franchise from the 80s, and not even a franchise from the 80s because the second one came out in 1989. So really just a huge movie from the 80s getting this massive send-off. And it's almost a send-off to the 80s. Except this movie doesn't do anything with the 80s. Unless you mean 
the 1880s. <laughs> I guess I'm looking at two and three kind of together. There is one other thing I want to talk about, which is postmodernism and the use of genre and genre conventions. This movie is very postmodern in its treatment of the Western, where it relies very heavily on the audience's knowledge of Western tropes and the subversion of those tropes. I mean, just think about the way that whole showdown goes, where it's specifically a reference to another film. And that feels very reminiscent with where genre filmmaking was heading in this decade. You get a little bit of that earlier on. I'm thinking of like Silverado in 85 is a great example of a postmodern neo-western but this even more so is self-parodying and self-aware you see it a lot in horror there's a lot of great postmodern horror films in the 90s obviously that culminates with something like scream we talked about this a little bit with misery and so i think that's definitely something to keep an eye on too particularly when we look at genre films it's like how they treat the genre whether they play it straight faced or whether there is that element of commentary whether that is there's that element of awareness and that expectation that the audience would be aware as well given the narrative context of this film where it's about people from our time going back to that time i can't imagine a movie would hit it quite as hard on the head as something like back to the future part three where the characters themselves are commenting on the genre but it's i think going to be at least a minor sub theme that we'll see a couple more times cool well that is back to the future part three and what a beast of a podcast it's been man this has been great though i'm kind of glad we did it again i'm glad we got a second chance just like marty did you're glad we went we got to go back yeah, it was great. Um, Me we too. A lot. Me too. We learned a lot. We we laughed. We cried. We went 88 miles per hour. We saw some serious shit. So our next show is going to be on this movie called Miami Blues with Alec Baldwin. And I'm pretty excited about it. You guys should watch the movie if you haven't seen it. And then you should listen to the next podcast. I badmouthed it on our very first episode. So I'm ready to eat some crow. Yeah, let's do it. I'll Baldwin, baby. What if Baldwin had played Marty? Would that be a good casting? <laughs> man, I wish I had a Alec Baldwin impression. I just gotta get my voice really deep. <laughs> okay, we gotta kill this thing, man. We gotta we gotta end this right now. Um <laughs> We're back to the movies. This is Nat. And this is Ben. And we are signing off. Have a good one, guys, and be safe with your flux capacitors. 